Okay, everyone right to go? Well, may we say God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor Jim. I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up today is a bum. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. It says a lot about our great country that the son of a single mum who was a disability pensioner can stand before you tonight as Australia's Prime Minister. Recently, I interviewed Michelle Anandaraja, Labor member for the seat of Higgins. Michelle blazed her way into the seat of Higgins, using everything at her disposal to unseat Katie Allen. Both women from a medical professional background, both battling it out over a seat which has never been a Labor seat before. Michelle has had a lot said about her, a lot written about her. This podcast is Michelle, in her own words. Welcome, Michelle Anandaraja, to Pot on the Hill. Uh, it's lovely to have you. Um, we are taking stock a little bit today about the whirlwind that was the federal election and I'm sure the whirlwind that has been in your life since May 21. So tell us about the you know, the, the, the last few weeks and how it's been going from the campaign's fury to, to getting settled in the seat of Higgins as the MP. Hi, Nick. Yeah. Um, look, it's been quite a transition, I've got to say. I don't think – I don't know that it's actually sunk in. Yet, I think there's still always going to be a part of me that keeps staring, have this, has this out-of-body experience looking down at me going, what is going on here? <laughs> it's um, That's very grounding. It, yeah, it's very grounding. It's uh, It's been a whirlwind, no yes. doubt. Yeah. Um, so tell us about the campaign itself because you were sort of thrust into that, into that mm. spot um, but you had a very uh, laudable, very admirable um uh, you know, campaign where you did a lot of phone calls, you made, a, you did a lot of door yep. knocking, you did a lot of street stalls and you were at, at pre-poll for every hour of every day. So you spoke to a lot of people. What was your sense of why they, the people of Higgins, opted for a change and voted Labor for in majority the first time that Higgins has been a Labor That's seat? That's right. Yeah. So this was a historic win. There's no question about that. And it didn't happen by accident. It happened because we worked really, really hard and we gave everything. We left everything on the field. And, um, you know, and I basically went in, as you said, as a novice. I didn't have any preconceived ideas of what I should or shouldn't do. I only know one thing, and that is to talk to people. And I'm very comfortable talking to people because I've been a doctor for 25 years and I do that every day and I speak to people from all walks of life. And so I felt comfortable approaching people and talking to them. That wasn't going to be an issue but a campaign is not just about talking to people. Um, it's it's very much having a strategy and then prosecuting it. And what did you discover in the conversations with people in Higgins? Yeah. Where where was their sense of, of the, the want for change coming from? So the first most striking thing, first of all, was that the people in Higgins had not, the people I spoke to, and I spoke to thousands of them, had never spoken to a federal candidate. By and large, no one had ever reached out to them um, individually or on a very personal level to have a conversation or to even listen to what they wanted to say. So I think that they were pretty, um, I guess, curious about the process to start with. And they were, in most cases, they were very open-minded. So, of course, people will hang up the phone or they'll slam the door in your face or they'll, you know, whatever. But in general... Um, I found people to be quite receptive and they were appreciative that um, we took the time to turn up and to listen to what they had to say. 
now your uh, step into politics was from a very interesting, almost unique, mm. probably not quite unique, but but certainly very rare perspective where you were thrust into the spotlight as a medical professional during a pandemic mm. and made a, a jump to to a political response to, to that pandemic. What what pushed you into that position to say, I'm I'm ready to take a political act rather than a, as a medical professional in, in the face of what is happening? Yeah, so the pandemic, there's no question the pandemic politicised me. I'd already been a bit politically minded in the sense that as a child growing up in a small African country called Zambia, I um, was well aware of apartheid and uh, and had, you know, so so I wasn't completely politically unaware. I would have, I'd say I, I was politically aware without necessarily being politically inclined. However, the pandemic changed everything. So during the pandemic, I became a medical activist and I've spoken quite openly about that. And that changed me. Um, And I realized that there were senior people, political leaders who had no skin in the game who were dictating what we should and shouldn't do. And it had a material impact on the lives of ordinary Australians, including frontline healthcare workers. And that's really what motivated me to speak up during the pandemic because, you know, we couldn't even access the proper masks. We had no vaccines at the time. Um, We were literally being uh, thrown to the wolves and I wasn't going to stand for it. And my my colleagues were approaching me. They were worried. We just didn't feel heard. And I knew that I had the skills. I am an infectious disease specialist. I have a research background. I know how to analyze data. I have been a, um, you know, I'm one of the top reviewers for an American journal and all I do is review papers because I'm good at analysing data. So I knew I had the skills to unpack this and to to make sense, decode, I guess, the deluge of data we were getting and and try and advocate for better. So that was the context of the medical activism and then the next thing was, of course, making that transition to a, a, a bigger stage, right? And what I realised also was that politics really is the... Politi- everything comes down to politics, actually. I know a lot of people during the campaign, especially young people, said, oh, I don't care about politics. I'm not interested in it. In fact, what I would turn to them and say is that this is not about politics. Politics is a means to solve problems. So talk to me about your problems because then I can try and solve them. And I think that's what it comes down to. If you want to drive change at a scale and a speed that you know you need to, then there's no other way to do it except through politics. Standing in this chamber, I still feel the pull of medicine, a rewarding career of service and advocacy that will be extended here. I saw for 25 years, the sins of society wash up in our public hospital system homelessness, poor education, childhood trauma, social isolation, poverty, racism, unemployment, and climate change. According to the WHO, these so-called social determinants of health can account for over half of all health outcomes, where one problem reinforces another. Health is all about context. For example, diabetes clusters with poor nutrition and poverty. The Lancet describes syndemics, the synergistic interaction of social, economic, and environmental factors. 
It's a framework relevant to our future CDC, but just as pertinent to this place too. I prescribe pills for problems rooted in disadvantage, but these are problems that need a parliament, not a prescription pad. As a doctor, I saw things as they were. Now, as a parliamentarian, I see things as they could be. And t tell us about those moments that you encountered when you were, uh, uh, you know, uh, coming into that, uh, what you describe as medical activism, uh, and you, you appeared on, on uh, TV mm -hmm. uh, to, to advocate for, for certain, uh, you know, um, steps and, and a certain perspective. Were there moments where you thought this is a, a scary thing to be doing? Was it extremely exposing? Or what was going through your head as you were, totally. you know, entering that space? Totally. So, um I'm in a less vulnerable position now, being a member of parliament around within the the embrace of a mighty political party, right? Um, I have a certain degree of um, security in this position, even though it is clearly an insecure job. When I was a medical activist, I didn't have that. All right, what I did have was um, the support of a coalition, a loose coalition of like-minded clinicians, right? And, and that's the key. You, if you want to drive change, you're much better doing it with other people, right? You go further. And that's what I found. But the, you're, you're right. I mean, leadership is a position of, it is a, can be, you, you can be out on a limb and it can be a very lonely place to be. So um, I was speaking truth to power during that time and it wasn't an easy thing to do because power, at that time, power did not want to listen. And did you feel like a whistleblower at some point or a, um, a shit stirrer at least? Oh, for sure. I think, look, to be an activist, you have to be prepared to shake the tree. Um, but there was always a, you know, a very clear motivation. I wanted to keep healthcare workers, nurses, doctors, young, old, allied health professionals, paramedics safe. And I knew that if we were safe, then the community would be safe because it was clear that infections from hospitals were spilling into the community and in some cases were prolonging our lockdowns. So it, it was clear as day that we had to look after the front line. And you had quite a bit to say about Scott Morrison's leadership at the time during the campaign. Yeah. Uh, you were quite critical yeah. um, of, of him. Where was his failing? Because it was quite obvious for us to see that there was a failure of his approach to the whole thing. You, you've got it. I can tell with the way you're shaking your head, the, the listeners can't see this. You are, you have a lot to say about Scott Morrison. One of the key motivations for me running was to get rid of Scott Morrison. Okay. And I achieved that. So I'm already happy. I'm satisfied. Um, fail leaders like uh, our former prime minister have no place in our country. And you've seen what has happened to, um, leaders internationally who have failed during this pandemic, whether it be Trump, Morrison, or indeed now, Johnson, Boris Johnson. This pandemic is the ultimate pressure test for leadership. And it has tested our leaders, some of whom have risen, others have fallen and have been pushed to the wayside, as it should be. Because um, the health, the well-being of 25 million people cannot be left to chance and it cannot be left to leaders who are unable to forecast, unable to prepare, 
um, or unwilling to prepare and are honestly filled with hubris. Uh, and, you know, I am scathing of this because this sort of style of leadership has caused so many problems. And I'm, you know, and I, I think it's commendable that in 2022 the Australian people slammed the door on that. And do you think that's characterised, that, that those three men you mentioned, characterised by a, a lack of consultation, a lack of compassion, a lack of, of problems, like eagerness to problem solve or willingness to problem solve? What do you think it is? I think it's a lack of integrity. Um, it's a lack of... Um, an inability to plan, uh, to preempt problems before they become crises. It's also hubris. Hubris keeps coming up because, uh, you know, these. Uh, I think these leaders are characterised by some of those traits. And and this is, you know, the pandemic, the worst public health emergency this humanity has seen, right? Um, came and they were found wanting. Now tell us some, um, did you lose skin, lose friends in the medical community from speaking out or do you think you, you gained a, a respect or admiration from doing that? I mean, you know, yeah. talk us through what that was like. Um, sure. So so in speaking up, I was abs- I was being critical of, of some of my colleagues um, and I think that in retrospect, yeah, sure, absolutely. Some relationships curdled but others blossomed and and I think that's the key. So once you take something like this on, you have to be willing to jettison certain relationships. There's no question about that. And I I was willing to do that because it was just too important. Um, I, I couldn't just coast along uh, allowing this, um, this sort of conventional wisdom to continue when people's lives, including mine and my colleagues, were being put at risk so I didn't have a problem doing it. Yeah. Now you've got a, um, a maiden speech uh, coming up in in Parliament which is one of the reasons you've been you know very cautious about how much you want to talk about things that you want to reveal in the big reveal being the maiden speech so I won't press you on that <laughs> but I, I do want to ask about what sort of uh, priorities you have for this this term um, that that you this opportunity that you've got as the, the first Labor member in Higgins uh, what, what sort of things do you want to see happen now that, that we've achieved that big mountain that we've mm. climbed and, and won that government back uh, and it was a, a, a replacement of a truly terrible government that, that made us all shake our heads and, you know, push our, put our, our, um, our hands to our foreheads every day about how they could get so many things so very wrong. Um, so what, what are those priorities for you? Um, look, I think... I. I I would say, firstly, that I am um, so pleased with the way things have gone with our government. You know, we're sort of six weeks in and I think government has set the tone for the way we're going to be uh, doing business going forward. And I've had constituents write to me and one lady said that this government was like a balm to a burn. Um, That's how they feel. So... We are here to be a professional outfit. I think that's the first thing. That means that we have to restore standards and in doing so, we have to restore trust. We will restore trust. And I think I always bring it back to the fundamentals. You can't govern 
well unless you have the, get the fundamentals right. And I would say that the Albanese Labor government is getting the fundamentals right. We are repairing the damage or trying to repair the damage of a decade of drift, neglect, hubris and hot air. And I think the, the uh, foreign trips by uh, Penny Wong and Anthony Albanese have been you know, a, a clear demonstration of how much good you can do with the right motivations. Absolutely. I know that, you know, when the floods came, the Prime Minister received a bit of criticism. But as I said on on the ABC, that he wasn't sitting by the pool sipping pina coladas in Hawaii. He was out working on these trips in Australia's national interest to repair um, fences and build bridges with international leaders. And these were relationships that had really been um, neglected over many years. And we need those um, relationships in order to solve the biggest challenge facing us, which is, of course, climate change. So Australia is on the course now to address this in a meaningful way. Um, but to solve the climate crisis or climate emergency is going to take a global effort. It's going to take, honestly, rich countries banding together, working cooperatively, and then helping poor countries um, to decarbonize. So multilateralism matters. It is going to be the word of the next decade, probably two decades. And if you can't foster good relationships at home or even within your own party, then you're not going to foster those relationships internationally. So, again, it comes down to trust. It comes down to working cooperatively, collaboratively. And I think our prime minister and this government have demonstrated that they have the capacity to do that. Now, we've talked very uh, briefly about the, the uh, um, look towards the uh, you know, regional neighbours or um, um, you know, foreign partners. Um, and I think there'll be a curiosity. You, you mentioned you grew up in Zambia. Um, does that have a, a formative you know, influence on you as someone who considers yourself, yes, Australian, but also looking towards the other, the other mm. partners in our, in our, on our globe? Yeah, I think it does. I, so my heritage is Sri Lankan. My ancestry is Sri Lankan Tamil. Um, I was born in England. I grew up in Zambia. I came to Australia when I was 11. Uh, so, you know, I think it has probably given me a very international perspective and I'm acutely aware of the, the world beyond our shores because I've also travelled a lot, right? Um, so I think all, all of this is helpful. It's all helpful. Um, I do have an af- affinity and an affection for Africa, of course. How could I not? I had an idyllic childhood. In the way my children go to the beach, I went on safari. Um, and uh, there are some experiences there that I'll never forget. I, I close my eyes and I remember my childhood like it was yesterday. So standing by the foot of Victoria Falls, that torrent of water, it's called Musiotunia, which means the smoke that thunders. And when you stand there in front of that that wall of water, and I was a little tiny kid, your whole body shakes, all right? That's what it's like. Um, But I also remember in my times of my childhood going on safari, seeing, you know, herds of animals, elephant, giraffe, I even saw rhino in the wild. And I've been back to Africa since then several times and those herds are gone, right? They're gone. 
Um, and you see rhino only in um, if they're being protected by squads, right? Men with machine guns. So the world has changed. Those herds have gone for lots of reasons. The loss of habitat is one, but also accelerating climate change. So there is a very tangible loss of biodiversity that I've witnessed in my own lifetime. And now that I am a leader in a government, um, every lever that will can be pulled will be pulled now to um, correct this. As a migrant, I have watched with alarm as words used in this chamber ricochet around the country, tearing at our social fabric. Spillover effects are acts of hate on our streets against Asians, Jews, Muslims, people of color, the gender diverse. And the gun gets fired here. We have a choice. We can accept the politics of division or devalue that currency to junk. I am proud that the Australian people and Higgins did just that. Do better, they cried. The triumph of modern Australia, a diverse multicultural nation, is worth celebrating every single day. Social capital is our true sovereign wealth fund that, if managed well, will pay a dividend to us, its shareholders, forever. And I think your, your global perspective of being a citizen of several places, now only a citizen of Australia, of course, Section 44, uh, mindful, but you... Um, <laughs> just for those who are listening that might be suspicious. Um, uh, but uh, so many of the problems that you've spoken about are global problems. They cannot be solved by a, a single nation doing their own thing to protect themselves. They'll probably be doing so at the, uh, the deficit of, of others. So that, that is perspective that is required. Do you think it's been lacking? Oh, for sure. I think the last decade, but particularly the last three years, um, have been very inward looking and, of course, exacerbated by the pandemic. The pandemic made us all circle up the wagons, if you like. Um, but we now really do need to start peeking over the parapet because we have some major challenges and we're living through that now. We have an inflation problem, which is driven by energy and driven by global supply chain shortages and now labor force shortages as well. And these problems are not gonna be solved just by us. These are gonna re require global cooperation. So I'm really hoping that, um, and I know that our government will, is re-engaging and is making a very powerful case that it is back. It is back to do business with the rest of the world. What I do worry about is, um, I guess, what is going on in America. America is such an important ally to Australia. And like many people, I've seen that country struggle um, in recent times with its values. And I really hope um, the United States returns to its North Star, its um, values of liberty, of human rights, of democracy, free speech, freedom of speech, um, equality, because those were the cornerstones of their, of their nation and they seem to be drifting away from those values.
Um, for me, um, I mean that that is another you know entire podcast we could we could uh, do on on American politics right now, <laughs> given what's happening daily. Mm. Um, but I want to actually just go back for a second and say that um, Scott Morrison's uh, appearance at the Pacific Islands Forum um, and it's that seemed for me to to typify the way that he seems so like unwilling. It was it was a it was almost like it was a chore to be there and a, and a chore to actually to, and it, it's that famous image. It's not him in Hawaii, but he's wearing the 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 lay around his head or, or you know the um, the garland and so it's it it fits with the, the image that we had of him being in the tropics rather than at home. But um, that that image came from the Pacific Island Forum where he was disparaging. He made I think he made the uh, the. Uh, Prime Minister of Fiji cry, I think, from memory, or I mean, you know, it was a, an emotional response to the lack of any willingness or or uh, generosity about about what to do in that forum. That, for me, typifies how how little he seemed to to care about his role as you know someone to build those those relationships. Absolutely, and you know, it comes down to also this narrative that the Liberals like to push that they are superior economic managers and also better at national security. Now, these are their two kind of touchstones that they keep going back to. But here's the thing. we, As for economic management, we have inherited a mess. Let's be frank. Um, a trillion dollars in debt, not enough to, to show for it. As um, Jim Chalmers says, he talks about generational debt, but no, no dividend, right, to show for this. And he's right. Um, then, of course, we have national security. Well, we have massive problems on that front. Um, and I'm not just referring to defence and the capability gaps that we have there and the complete mess that the previous government made of uh, defence procurement. But national security is much more important than just defence. It also relates to um, climate security, food security, water security, biosecurity, as this pandemic has shown. And I think we are wanting on all those fronts, perhaps with the exception of food security, Australia is the breadbasket. Um, but certainly the previous government did not, uh, I have to question what they did actually, because for us to still have these big gaps tells me that they dropped the ball. Um, and with respect to our Pacific family, yeah, we, we absolutely need to be the partner of choice. And that is something that Penny and um, the Prime Minister have been, have been uh, advocating, that we are here for our Pacific neighbours and our support comes with no strings attached. And that is a really, really important message to propagate, apart from the fact that we're also committed to climate action. Now, um, I did mention your maiden speech before, so I shan't um, get you to, uh, you're, you're <laughs> laughing at me, but um, but you're like, I'm not going to give too much away. So, so, but give us a teaser. What, what do you want your maiden speech to be, <laughs> to be about? What do you want it to say about you? Look, it's a hard one, isn't it? Because I, I, I actually have a lot to say. Now, <laughs> once I started writing it, I seem to be just, you know, writing reams and reams of words. Turning into a book. It's, just, it's a book. just too long. <laughs> I, it needs 
massive editing, but I'm really good at editing, so I'm going to do that. Do you have a publisher yet for your main um, speech? No, not yet. <laughs> I think it's well, called the Parliament of Australia. <laughs> we'll, we'll make sure that there's a there's a way that um, that our listeners can get a hold of that link when it is when it is finally performed <laughs> it's, it's and done. published. Yeah. Um, but um, the the last uh, before we wrap up, the last thing I'll ask you is about what sort of um, you know literature and or music or or uh, film TV you're watching at the moment that you would recommend people uh, get into. Oh, wow, that's a good one. Um, so I read a lot. I read widely. I tend to read nonfiction more than fiction only because I see fiction as an indulgence and I don't have time. <laughs> well, we can't have time for indulgence. That's what are, what are we thinking? That's just not time for indulgence. You know? um, so so I, I tend to – and the good thing about coming entering politics is that it's actually made me really well, much better informed than I used to be. So, so now I have to know a lot about everything uh, or a little about everything. Um, and I – and that is challenging. You know, I, I used to find it hard to keep up with medicine, but this is a whole nother level. So, but fortunately we have access to some great resources in the parliament, especially the parliamentary library, who are phenomenal and provide, um, you know, incredible research. They turn things around really fast and uh, we are lucky to have them um, in our corner. And I'm so, really so no recommendations on like hot new murder mysteries that you've got? Hot new murder mysteries and like movies. I'm just, just trying to think, look. It's just the non-fiction. Yeah, look, the reading. World reading, expanding literature yeah, yeah. is what you're going to tell us. Yeah, so reading tends to be a, a mix of kind of psychology, meta thinking, and then, of course, current affairs. What else? Um, movies are really, you know, I'm very highbrow when it comes to movies. So my <laughs> last movie that I watched was Thor. Jurassic World. <laughs> And I full on loved it. <laughs> Good. Um, yeah, so definitely with movies, it's all about escapism, and the more unrealistic it is, the better. Okay. Um, the indulgence is Jurassic World. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I've got teenagers. What can I say? They keep things real. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, it's very lovely to have you. Unless you've got any final recommendations to make of uh, of things you're reading from the parliamentary library, uh, we'll say my last. <laughs> let's see. The last thing I read, which was yesterday, was uh, a report by the Productivity Commission. Excellent. Productivity <laughs> Commission and Jurassic World is there you go. high on the reading list. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Michelle. It's uh, congratulations again on uh, becoming the uh, member for Higgins. We can't wait to see what you've got in store for us. Thanks, Nick. People from every background and belief inspired to make a change at that election because they understood what it meant for our nation. It's an electorate beating with a lion heart. Dr Ennis, an endocrinologist and Higgins resident of 50 years, sums it up. As a child, he asked his father who he should vote for. His father replied, Families like ours always do well when the Liberal Party are in government. But sometimes you have to do what's best for everyone and what's best for the community. That's why I always vote Labour. Three days after Dr Ennis died, Higgins returned its first Labour member. Dr Ennis did his bit. Now I will do mine. The people of Higgins will judge us by the force of our actions rather than the froth of our words, as Churchill said. But listening to locals, hearing their stories on front steps and on the end of the phone became for me the reason for the season. To the people of Higgins, I carry with me your wishes and your worries into government. 
It is a humbling and heavy responsibility and I thank you for it.